Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL, and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. Today's podcast is about propaganda, war propaganda, election propaganda, and President Vladimir Putin's use of the interview he granted to Tucker Carlson for the purpose of signaling, messaging, and more. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Dr. Ian Garner, an expert on Russian war propaganda at Queen's University in Ontario and author of the new book, Z Generation, Russia's Fascist Youth, which was published last year. Thanks very much for joining me, Ian. Thanks very much for having me back, Steve, and what's been a very fascinating week in Russia. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, great to have you on the show. Often uh, unbelievable um, these days, I'm afraid, but uh, great to have you on the show again. I think it's the first, certainly the first time this year, uh, but we've had some great discussions in the past. Uh, let's uh, talk first about Tucker Carlson's interview, uh, the only interview Putin has granted to a Western media figure since he launched the full-scale invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago, despite countless uh, requests from, from the Western media. Uh, he also um, asked uh, very few questions or gave very few questions to Western media outlets at his press conference uh, at the end of last year, uh, despite the, the hands shooting up. Um, now, much has been said about Carlson's exchange with Putin, but I'd be interested in your viewpoint, I guess mainly about how Putin approached it, uh, what he may have wanted out of it, and what actually came across. Maybe what it says uh, about his aims for the war and for relations with the West. I'll just say two things about my impressions, informed uh, in large part by media reports and analyst comments that have emerged since the uh, interview was posted, uh, I believe it was Thursday. One is that, uh, as many have pointed out, if Putin wanted to impress or influence audiences in the United States and elsewhere who may be receptive to his frequent messaging about gender issues, um, what he calls traditional values and such, uh, he did a poor job. He, he barely mentioned those matters. Uh, and he also did little, I would say, to advance his claim that a supposed threat from the United States and NATO um, forced or was, there, or was uh, one of the main reasons for uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Instead, he focused heavily on false or, or other false historical arguments, um, starting the interview with a lecture that went back uh, centuries and lasted about half an hour, I believe. And, and while Putin's uh, remarks in recent years have strongly suggested that his main motive for invading Ukraine was an obsession with Ukraine and the desire to subjugate it, this interview only seemed to reinforce that impression. Ian, apologies, I don't want to shape this discussion too much, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on the interview. So I, I, broadly speaking, I agree. I, I think overall this has been a big victory for Putin. Simply getting an American provocateur, we'll call Carlson, because I don't think it's right to call him a journalist, but an American provocateur to come over to Moscow, be 
treated with such uh, excitement and enthusiasm by the Russian media to draw in Western media to speaking into speaking about Putin, Putin's war goals and, and Putin's version of history and version of reality, because that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about the past. We're talking about a perspective on the nature of being, which I'll get onto in a second. Simply by doing that, and especially by bringing in somebody who is, let's be clear, not a minor figure, Carlson is sidelined by the mainstream media, but has a huge audience online, and of course has, or seems to have a direct line to Donald Trump as well. That in and of itself is a victory. Regardless, and it is really easy to get lost in the nitty gritty details and to say, well, Putin could have pushed forward this messaging about gender issues much more strongly, especially when uh, Carlson almost invited him to do so. But that's to miss the bigger point, which is getting the attention in and of itself is a win. And boy, did Putin do that. The -hmm. fact that we are talking about it right now suggests that he's he's won on that front. And we are chasing Putin's coattails, trying to make sense of it. But I just want to draw attention to this, this question of history a little bit more. And the idea of reality and, and fake realities, history and, and fake history, which undoubtedly is what Putin presented us. Because when the Russian state talks about history, it is not talking about the reality of what happened in the past. And I don't think even Putin really believes that he is talking about the empirical reality of what happened in the past. The Russian state approaches history as if it were myth. It approaches history as a religious group would do. And that is to interpret and reinterpret history and historical events along symbolic lines. And so it doesn't matter that Poland didn't actually um, invite or or, or force Nazi Germany to invade Poland in in the the end of the 1930s, as uh, as Putin suggested that Poland had. Mm -hmm. It's a suggestion that this is a historical event of an archetype. This is the type of event that occurs in history, and therefore this is the type of event that is occurring today that is causing Russia to have to act in a particular way. And I thought Putin's comments on on religion were quite interesting. When Carlson asked him, but aren't, aren't you as a Christian somebody opposed to killing. I forget the exact question, but it was it was pretty close to that. And Putin said, well, you know, no, 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 we've got to do it. And then went off to talk about these sort of symbolic ideas about the Russian soul and Dostoevsky. He's not talking about reality. He is literally talking about fiction and he knows it. So he's thinking in these sort of religious mythical terms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Really fascinating. Uh, I think those are great points about, um, you know, I'm I'm always sort of wondering, you know, how much Putin believes of what he says. And, you know, in the past, I, I, I always thought, you know, very little. Um, and more recently, you know, people have argued 
he believes a lot of the things. Um, but but I think you know you're probably right on the mark saying you know he's not he's not trying to convey what what he even believes are the facts about history. He he is you know he he is doing it for for another for another purpose. Um, and also interesting about you know at the kind of bottom line, yes, you know there's been a lot of I guess back and forth about you know in in a way similar to a summit, you know you have the uh, the media talking about zero sum kind of who who won you know when you had a Soviet U.S. summit uh, or a Russian U.S. summit um, and you know did did this leader or that leader get their point across. But but you know I think you're suggesting well bottom line he kind of just just the fact of it um, is you know is a victory for Putin and um, uh, you know there there's a lot to that I think um, so uh, I guess I'd like to to go on to to the next question um, about uh, Putin's propaganda more broadly, Kremlin propaganda related to Russia's war in Ukraine uh, and to the presidential election, um, which is being held March 15th to 17th, uh, just over one month away. Uh, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine reaches the two-year mark on February 24th. Uh, though Putin apparently believed the war, which the Kremlin still insists on calling the special military operation, would be over in Russia's favor um, in a matter of days or weeks. Uh, but the war is still going on, um, obviously, in, in a very major way. Uh, as for the election, uh, given, given the Kremlin's control over all kinds of levers nationwide, it's certain to hand Putin a new six-year term by a large margin barring some massive and unexpected event. Uh, but Putin presumably wants to win by a very large margin. Uh, you know, some numbers have been thrown around. Um, I think his spokesman Peskov said, once said that he he could win 95% uh, or 90%, obviously a, you know, unrealistic amount. Um, and the fact that uh, a would-be candidate, uh, Boris Nadezhdin, who was a critic of the war, was barred from the ballot last week um, after a signature campaign showed a substantial measure of public support, suggests that there's a limit to the Kremlin's confidence um, about this this process. So broad question, Ian, what, what, are, we, what are you seeing uh, in terms of the Russian state's uh, war and election propaganda? Has, has the war propaganda been changing at all? Um, as, as as it continues, and what tack is the Kremlin taking as this uh, non-competitive election uh, approaches? So I would I would say that those two issues, that is the issue of the war propaganda and the election propaganda, are inextricably linked. And the headline message is very clearly one of inevitability right now. And I don't think the nature of the propaganda, the forms, the mediums in which it's being spread have really changed in any substantial way over the last two years, because we are almost at the two year mark of the war. Certainly, we're seeing different propaganda forms in terms of the way that the West is targeted, but that's a different question entirely. If we focus purely on the Russian audience, then we still see the same 
mix of talk shows and troll networks, bot networks intermingled with with true believers posting online and much of the action is happening online on VK, on Telegram and in particular on TikTok where lots of younger Russians are getting their news nowadays. But when we look at the narratives, the war narrative, and actually this is something that did come up in the Carlson interview is, and has been for the last few months, the West is weakening. Western support is beginning slowly to crack, slowly to evaporate. Ukrainian resistance is beginning to crack. Ukrainian people are getting tired of the war. Russia, on the other hand, is getting its act together. Yes, there were mistakes made in the first few months of the war, but now we have a handle on things. The death toll seems to be slowing down at the front whether it's reality or not, this is this is the story that's given, I should make clear, mm-hmm. and that the Russian economy is resilient. And so we're seeing over and over again this story that if you can just wait it out, average Russian reading the newspaper or watching the television, wait another two months, wait another six months, another 12 months, all will be right in the world. And when we saw that in Carlson's interview was in the way that Putin was talking about the emergence of a multipolar world order, which he spoke about in inevitable terms and suggested that America is fated to inevitable decline. Again, it's the narrative of just hold steady. And there's not a damn thing that anybody anywhere can do to change this. Therefore, fighting the war from Ukraine's perspective is futile. And counting on Russia's victory is something that you just have to do because Russia is going to win. Again, this is a very, you know, there's a very religious reading of what history could be, right? Where history isn't contingent, nobody has agency in history. History simply unfolds step by step by step with a certain inevitability. And thus, we come to the election, which even even by the standards of Putin's previous presidential elections, has been a quiet affair. It's not been much heralded so far. There's been no huge speeches, no big editorial pieces from Putin in national newspapers. We haven't seen any big stadium parades yet. I'm, I'm sure that we will do in the next couple of couple of three weeks as the election is just over a month away. In particular, I would look out for the the day of the defender of the fatherland in about 10 days from now. Um, That's always a major point for Russian patriots and uh, the pro-military crowd. And Putin's often around presidential elections, done a a parade at the Luzhniki Stadium to show his uh, latest slogans and latest ideas off. But I think we're in a, a point where the opposition has been eliminated. Boris Nadezhdin, the opposition candidate, if he was a real opposition candidate and not somebody who was uh, put there as a stooge by the Kremlin and then perhaps withdrawn as they saw that maybe an opposition candidate might be too too popular or too, uh, too challenging to Putin, all of it seems totally under control from my perspective. There is no sense of a united opposition. There is no sense of a clear opposition narrative and any oppositional activity that's more chaotic, like, for example, the protests in uh, Bashkiri a couple of weeks ago seem to have been 
stamped out. They seem to be isolated and don't seem to be having any real impact on what's happening in the political center. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does strike me. I mean, as as you said, there probably will be uh, rallies. Um, you know, maybe maybe articles by Putin. You know, in in the coming weeks. Um, it always strikes me how how different. Um, I guess the election cycle is in in Russia under Putin. You know, than uh, from how it is in the United States or other countries. You know, where you have obviously the United States, the election is 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 already kind of the campaign is already, you know, in, in full gear. And in Russia, a month until the election and a few days, and there's there's just not that much happening. Um, uh, but but as you say, you know, I think it's I think it, it you know it's more pronounced uh, this year for for those reasons. Uh, the opposition is crushed. Um, um, and yes, you know, Nadezhda, and it does seem like whatever you know whatever happened to kind of generate his candidacy um the kremlin seems to have decided um uh that the the sh- kind of show of support the idea that somebody who wants change you know wants an end to the war but but also you know is running as an actual alternative to putin unlike the other candidates um you know is just something that that can be accepted um if he's going to get more than than a couple percent uh, percentage points in, in the vote, um, you mentioned. I just wanted to ask uh, one other thing. You mentioned um, the you know the the war and the election are kind of in, intertwined inextricably. Um, the, I'm trying to remember when it was, but um, uh, towards the end of the year, you know, Putin gave quite a grim. Uh, speech in which he, you know, pretty much said the war is here to stay. Um, there's no, uh, and it kind of, I think it surprised some people who 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 would think that he was going to provide kind of a an indication that there's not long, you know, not long to go. But he said, you know, we still have the same goals: um, denazification, demilitarization, uh, that sort of thing. So I'm wondering, um, you know, it, is do you think um, that that there'll be a change in the rhetoric kind of after after the election is 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 over with? I think to answer that question, we have to turn our eyes to the United States because so much of Putin's strategy on the ground in Ukraine right now is predicated on support from America drying up. And so as we talk about long election cycles, nine months out from the election, if my math is correct, and I apologize, it's 7 a.m. when we're recording, so I may be off by a few weeks. Nine months out from the election, Putin and Putinists already looking looking ahead and hoping desperately that Donald Trump will win. Donald Trump will have a friendly legislative body behind him. And that there will simply be no more funds and no more support to Ukraine. And Ukraine will, will have to fold, will have to parley for peace on probably unfavorable terms that... And that as a result, Russia 
in tandem will be able to exploit political divides in Ukraine, will be able to stoke up rifts, junctures, revanchism between different different groups of people who will argue that the war should have been won, could have been won, could have been conducted in a different way, all the should have, would have, could have you can think of, while Russia retains its, uh, its mostly united front, or at least gives the impression of doing so. And so I, I, I think we may see that the fighting in Ukraine will die down, but what we will certainly see is continued militarism from the Russian state and the continued rhetoric that Russia is in a bigger, broader kind of metaphysical battle with its enemies in the so-called collective West. And of course, there is a glaring contradiction here, right? On the one hand, we're hoping that a friendly Donald Trump and his friendly supporters like lovely Tucker Carlson will ride to Russia's rescue and help us out by abandoning Ukraine. And on the other hand, Putin contends that the collective West is, a, is an age-old eternal enemy in these religious terms and therefore can't be trusted on any matter. So there is an impossibility in the rhetoric. It doesn't make sense, but that that's what they're putting forward. Right, absolutely. Um, by the way, I think you're absolutely right about the... Um... The nine, the nine months. Despite, uh, well, thanks for thanks for uh, joining me at seven a.m. Uh, your time, I really do appreciate it. Um, I just, if if you don't mind, just a follow up question about um, the you, you mentioned in discussing the uh, Russian kind of propaganda um, aimed at Russians over the election, um, and I think you said you know there have been some changes or or just sort of various tacks taken by the Kremlin. In terms of um, propaganda about the war, you know, aimed at at the West or or the world, um, you know, would you mind sort of going into that a little a little bit uh, more deeply? Absolutely, I, I I get the sense that that looking back two years now, we've had a little bit of time to reflect. The Russian state was not really ready to propagandize the war to its own people, nor to propagandize the war abroad. Because they expected to win fairly quickly. I don't know if the, the three days story is true or not. I'm not quite sure I believe it, that they were that overconfident. But, you know, they expected to win within weeks and that Ukraine would somehow collapse, that the government would flee. And so they just they just didn't seem really ready to target particular audiences, let alone the, the broader West with particular messages. And so they they mostly didn't really bother. They allowed they ceded that space to Ukraine. They ceded that space to to liberals in the West for the better part of, of a year before really beginning to target hard and you can see the targeting working and the targeting is most obviously directed towards far-right audiences in the west in particular in the united states to a lesser extent to, to the far left we we know about that horseshoe uh, horseshoe theory in which the far right and the far left actually agree on some matters and we see it on platforms like Twitter or X, which have become more friendly, which have allowed Russian state propagandists to, to host Twitter spaces. Alexander Dugin, the, uh, the far right 
thinker, if you can call him that, although I think it's a stretch to call him a thinker. He hosted a Twitter space a few weeks ago, Q&A with a, with a guy who was you know, a shill for the Russian government. They're really realizing that they have tools to access Western audiences directly and that it doesn't just have to be covert influence operations like fake media accounts, fake Facebook groups and, and fake trolls and bots that we saw during the or lead up to the 2016 American presidential election, for example. There is much more overt targeting of Western audiences through through these sorts of figures online and including politicians like Dmitry Medvedev, who talks to audiences through through Twitter X and through Telegram, for example. Mm -hmm. And I guess um, Tucker Carlson as well. Um, you know, that's that's another example of kind of a d direct, uh, directly targeting. Um, well, thanks very much. I mean, that that's really, uh, I mean, that was pithy, but but really great uh, comment. Um, I was unaware that Alexander Dugan had had a Twitter space recently. Um, so that, I think that is kind of a sign of the times, I guess. Um, all right. Well, I, I think we're going to to wrap it up here. Uh, but uh, thanks very much uh, for your insights. And thanks for joining me, Ian. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Hope we can do it again. Um, once again, I've been speaking to Dr. Ian Garner, an expert on Russian war propaganda at Queen's University in Ontario and author of the new book, Z Generation, Russia's Fascist Youth, which was published last year. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.